this is Danielle Houston. I'm a benefits advisor at Propel Insurance, and you are listening to my podcast, The Checkup, where we get to talk about anything and everything related to healthcare, employee benefits, really whatever we want. And there's so much ground we could always cover, especially when we're talking about healthcare. And we've been diving into some things in the last few months that I've sort of coined as beyond benefits because we're talking about things that, you know, they're connected, but not necessarily the traditional, here's a new plan that's available or a new market. Today is one of those examples. So my guest today is Dr. John Espinola. I'll call him SB the whole rest of the time. He kind of demands that, by the way, the SB. Do you not like being called John? Well, I went to Catholic school for 16 years, and when your name is John, you need a nickname (laughs) because there are too many of us. Too many. All right. So you became SB somewhere in Catholic school. That's right. Probably second grade. Welcome to the checkup. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're going to talk about some interesting things, some topics that we kind of started talking about when we were preparing for our webcast. We went live last week, and lots of people have watched it, which is really exciting. But as we were preparing for that, we started talking about these things around, you know, how do we make healthcare better? What are the things that we could do? How could we help not just the employers, but how do we help patients? How do we help the end users of healthcare? And part of our conversation, you said... I would really like to talk about some myths of healthcare. And I think it's a great topic. There are so many myths in healthcare, myths in how we pay for our healthcare. So that's the topic for today. We're gonna debunk some healthcare myths. Let's get at them. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about your background because you're not just an insurance guy. Not just an insurance guy. I'm a physician geriatrician by training and for those who don't know what that is that is someone who takes care of seniors okay which hopefully we all become one someday yeah so i'm well prepared for my later years (laughs) good and uh, practice for about 10 years locally here at harborview and also on mercer island mostly working with frail seniors so we got to see folks who were really dealing with substantive changes in their life alzheimer's the loss of mobility becoming increasingly frail And that has been something that continues to inform me in my life, my work, sort of thinking about how we help people live and live in a way that's satisfying to them. And to that end, I would say that as I have talked with you over the last weeks, it definitely seems as though it also shapes how you think about how we're receiving healthcare because you talk a lot about, let's not forget the people that are in there, the patients. And that's going to tie in really well to some of the things that you've outlined as being some of these common things we carry. They're not necessarily untrue to some of your points, but we've had a way to kind of run with these things and turn them into these strange big things that we probably need to think more about as a society and as users of healthcare. Yeah, that notion of myth has really two ideas, right? One is that it's a story and we have mythology, sometimes the foundational stories of societies. And then we use myth to also mean sort of falsehood. So I think we can talk a little bit about both of those yeah, ideas. Because they kind of intersect when we talk about mm-hmm. these things. So let's talk about the first one, the myth of the healer. Yeah, this one for me is really important as a starting place for thinking about 
the role of healthcare in our society. It's been obvious over the millennia that the role of the healer in society is pretty important. We tend to think about doctors today, but whether it was a priest or a shaman or a root doctor or witch doctor, any kind of healer, there's always been a special social contract between that person or that role and the rest of society. And that contract is really based on an exchange of things in exchange for maybe privilege or status or special dispensations in the rules of society or from the rules of society. That healer was expected to prioritize taking care of others. And what's interesting to me is human society has been around for a very, very long time. So most of that time, the role of the healer didn't have much to do with science. It was really around the art of healing and giving space for the experience of pain and suffering and giving space for the healing process in the community, much different than maybe what we experience today. But I think it's important to remember that because I think it gives insight into the fact that there's something there that humans deeply need or want such that every society that's ever existed created that role. So there's a need there, a real deep need that unspoken, deeply rooted, really I think is revealing to an important thing that we seek when we're in that capacity as a patient or someone who's sick or hurting, that we're seeking something. And uh, I think we gain good insights when we look at the role over the millennia. It's not a technician role, it's a healer role. The balance of art and science. Yes, indeed. Which I think we'll explore even more as we talk through these things. Do you think it's that people want answers, right? We all want guidance. We all want to know why. And so Mm. we always look to someone to tell us why. Why am I suffering? Can you fix it or can you at least tell me? I definitely think that's part of it. We seek answers and we seek comfort and safety in our own uncertainty and fear and the chaos or the experience of pain or whatever we might be going through. So I do think we seek both of those things. I'd like to have some answers about what's happening, but I'd also like to just be allowed to live into this with some comfort, some safety of being held in that moment. And that's where I think being a healer really comes into play. You are acknowledging what someone is going through and being with them through that journey. That's really a key part of the art of healing. I feel like this could do a deep dive into a very philosophical conversation about the meaning of life, Mm -hmm. right? We could get there fast. We could, we could. I kind of want to go there, but I feel like we should tiptoe around these other things first. Let's do that. Other things first. And a couple of your comments as we were, you know, just going through some notes for today is the role of the healer still relevant? And maybe that's a question that we can't answer. But yeah. And I think the relevance is you were outlining and talking about it. Isn't that the need is going away, but we're looking at it differently because we have all of this technology yeah. and sometimes we think then that there's always a cure. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the need is not going away. If anything, we have abundant evidence that it remains constant. One of the great dissatisfiers with people's experience with healthcare is that they have interactions with practitioners that are too short. Why is it too short? 
The reason it's too short is because people want to be heard and acknowledged, and they want to know that they've been seen. And there's probably a pervasive belief that in the seven or eight minute visit, it's hard for that to be accomplished, especially when someone is typing at a keyboard or distracted with, yeah, not looking at you and not maybe probing on what's really happening in your life. So I think it's incredibly relevant. The need is still there. What I think has happened is with the advent of modern science over the past hundred plus years, we've sort of shifted to a world where clinicians are being asked more and more to be technicians or technical experts at increasingly complex science and technology. And as a result, we've shifted the balance from healer and scientist, maybe more so healer years ago, to much more scientist now, a technician. And as a result, we've crowded out some of the opportunity for people to have an experience with their practitioner that's more in the healing art side of things with emotional connection and empathy and compassion. So I do think it's incredibly relevant. I think there's a potential that in a lot of situations there's a mismatch between the current environment and the way healthcare is practiced and the ability to create space for the healer relationship. There's a myth that it all amounts to the same thing, that it costs the same thing, that, you know, as you think about the care that you're seeking and the needs that you have, that somehow in our process of the system, we think that there's a fair and equitable way that our providers are receiving payment for caring for us and that the healthcare services we need, whether it's a prescription or a lab work and some of these other things that we end up always talking about, that that also has a pretty equitable distribution of payment. And that could not be further from the truth. It's an area of expose of sorts that I would love for every patient, every member to walk away from saying like, okay, I need to evaluate my medical care along with being a more engaged consumer and looking at that. I think that's right. I think two things come to mind when I hear you say that. The first is how we pay and how we indicate what we value. You know, in our society, we generally say if we pay a lot, we value it a lot. Yes. If we pay less, we value it less. If it was a big bill, it must have been really great care. Yeah, exactly. And I think what we see with the advent of modern healthcare and the way we reimburse for services Things that were easily quantified were easily paid for because you could measure it and just assign a multiplier to it and say, oh, if that's three units, we pay three times as much. So think about a prescription, easy to count the number of pills, you pay per pill. Think about lab services, you might have multiple elements to the blood work, you just add them all up and multiply by a a number. What's interesting is the healer part of it, which is really a relationship-based activity, can't be quantified. And so it tends to be relatively devalued because we pay for it at a low level. And you can't say, well, I spent more time and energy. I did a lot more investigation of what's going on in this person's life. So I will get paid a lot more. It's generally not how it works. So the payment system sort of de-emphasized the role of human interaction and emphasizes the role of technical activities like procedures. And, and what are you getting? And, what are yeah, you taking home with that's you? That's right, exactly. 
The second part which you raise, which I think is really important for folks to appreciate, is that there is a lot of variability in how individual practitioners practice healthcare. It is not as much a uh, scientific activity as we would hope. There's evidence all over the place that across clinicians of the same specialty, they make decisions differently. And even within a given clinician, from day to day, their decision-making changes. And that's driven by a lot of things, one of which is just the complexity of healthcare. The other is that it's an emotional activity. Am I rested today? Am I distracted as a clinician? Am I thinking about my 15-year-old son that got detention or something like that? Am I having a healthy relationship at home? Am I burdened at work? All these things actually contribute to the way we make decisions. Just like any other human. Exactly. Right. Healthcare, even if it's a technical activity, is a deeply human activity. And we're influenced moment to moment by our circumstances, our environment, our state of being, as well as all the ways we were trained and the biases inherent in that. So I had an interesting experience. I was covering for a clinician when I was in practice who went on vacation, and he was my mentor. And I thought he and I practiced very similarly because he was my mentor. And I opened the chart and was looking through it and saw, wow, we practice so differently. And we practiced side by side. And I had no idea how differently we practiced because we talked about things similarly. That was the beginning of my journey of understanding that there is an enormous amount of variation in healthcare. And the unfortunate thing is, one of the great myths is that because healthcare today, modern healthcare is rooted in science, is that it's consistently applied. Couldn't be further from the truth. And what we're talking about here, too, was your next myth, really, of this whole relationship, which is that healthcare is organized and scientific. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's it, kind of true. Well, it's kind of true. Yeah. We have, I would say, in aggregate, there are some trends. But when you look at the individual's experience in healthcare, there is wide variation in how decisions are made in the moment in the exam room. People might be recommended to have an intervention for radically different reasons and at radically different rates of appropriateness. We look at these data and you can see evidence everywhere, whether it's cardiac procedures, basic immunizations, basic screening procedures. And it shows up in a lot of ways. One is that we have an abundance of evidence that people don't always get the healthcare they need. So how does that happen? How do women show up for routine visits yet not get mammograms at an acceptable rate? How do men show up and not get counseled around the risks of screening for prostate cancer at a younger age, which can create a conundrum later if they get diagnosed because we don't really know what to do around that. We have all sorts of evidence that people aren't always getting the care they need, and that can only be explained by variable decision-making at the point of care, because it's well understood that there are standards for breast cancer screening, standards for colon cancer screening, for prostate cancer screening, you name it. Yet we have broad evidence that people aren't always getting those things. And then we have evidence that people are getting more than they need. Sometimes cancer screening starts 10 years earlier than it should which can create a headache if there's a false positive. The evidence is everywhere. The decision-making is variable. It's situation-specific. It's dependent on both the patient and the provider in their states of mind. 
It's a complex environment. So while there's science underlying all of it, we don't necessarily apply the science consistently in our decision making. Yet we often believe we do. And that's the part which is difficult for people to understand. We don't have great visibility into the variability and that helps perpetuate the myth that healthcare is a deeply scientific activity and not actually a human activity, which is subject to variability. And that is a great lead in to what my ask or my encouragement of people out there who are using the healthcare system, don't be afraid to ask your doctor questions. I'm surprised the people that I will talk to open enrollment meetings, the people who call for some help later. And sometimes it is due to that, well, I had a 15 minute appointment, I ran out of time. Or just the fact that, well, I mean, he's my doctor and he or she is really smart. So yeah, up on this pedestal. So I didn't ask questions or I just assumed that the doctor remembered that I had been in last month and took that lab test or that they're looking through all of those notes to remember the prescriptions that I take. So not being afraid to bring that up to your doctor. Do you remember that I'm taking this thing? Do you remember that a month ago, can you don't forget to look at the chart? Because again, we're dealing with other humans who aren't perfect and they make mistakes. And this is supposed to be a collaborative relationship too between healer and mere mortal. Amen to that. I think it's so important for patients to recognize that they actually play a critical role in empowering a clinician to be better. And that's by just making sure their story is heard, making sure that they feel like they understand how and why decisions are being made, and that they also give their own insights. I would tell my patients when they would ask me what was going on, I would always ask them first. I'd say, you know, you've been living with that body for 80 years. You know that body you pretty well. You know that body. Tell me your thoughts, right? Because I bet you have some good insights. And allowing that to be part of my decision-making because they would have insights that I could not otherwise get access to simply by doing a physical exam or doing labs. They might know that 20 years prior, long before I met them, they had some condition or procedure. So I think patients underestimate often the role that they can play in helping their doctor be the best that their doctor can be Mm -hmm. by really being a partner in that. And not so much contesting or challenging, but seeking to understand and in doing so, helping to make sure that thinking is inclusive of all the things that make sense and matter. It is a partnership, a collaboration, like you said. Mm-hmm. And I think we all want it to work well, right? And we definitely want it to work better. So the next one, I love this one too, because we could go a long way out on this myth that medical technology will make us healthier. Has it made us healthier? Look around. Yeah, boy. If we look at any of the major indicators of health status for a population like the United States population, we don't stack up well. Right. Mortality, life expectancy, death from various disease states. We rank worst among most developed countries. 
in spite and of the fact we spend yeah, more. In spite of the fact that we spend enormous amounts of money. So there's a lot of evidence that technology alone is not going to work. And that makes sense if you think about what really drives the majority of disease burden. It's low-tech things like what we eat and how active we are. The basics. And the environment we live in and the emotional status of our household or the fragmentation of households. All these things are major contributors to disease burden in a population and they're nearly impossible to address through technology. You know, what's interesting, Danielle, is the fact that as Americans, we love technology and we are so fascinated by technology. We have received massive benefit from it. Our lives are profoundly simpler, easier, and generally safer as a result of that. Though the advent of cell phones with driving has created its own (laughs) problems. But in general, we reap incredible benefits. But if you look at health status, Some of the lowest tech innovations like clean water, having wastewater treatment plants, having immunizations, and interestingly, a safe food supply chain, and good education. Those were the major drivers of leaps in health status we had as a country. The minute we had safe potable water, safe wastewater disposal systems, good education, basic immunizations, our life expectancy just went up dramatically. Those are all low-tech interventions. What we see in today's world is that the incremental benefits from substantially more complex technology, that's also much more expensive. That incremental benefit is actually very small when you compare it to the benefit of those basics. So if we could remember that just as much as we love our fascination with technology, if we could remember to invest and continue to support those basics around education, community safety, safe water, et cetera, all those things, we're likely to continue to have improvements in our health status as a population. I think our movement away from some of those things over time is what has caused our life expectancy to actually decrease recently for all age groups, our life expectancy has gone down recently. So I think it's important to remember that technology won't save us or make us healthier when compared against those things. Those things will do that writ large. Technology may help an individual with a condition live a better life, no doubt. But as a population, we're paying for the consequences of deteriorating health and we pay for it economically, We pay for it in terms of the productivity of our workforce. We pay for it in many other ways. Mm -hmm. That we probably can't afford over time because that's going to hurt us as a country. We're diverting more and more resources to compensating for those things that are taking away from our ability to develop and continue to invest in forward-thinking improvements. My simplest example is around heart disease. If you think about heart disease, over the years we've had incredible improvements in technology. But it really started with simple aspirin, basic blood pressure control pills that are maybe $20 for an entire year supply, basic cholesterol lowering drugs. All of that, maybe it's $500 a year, dramatically reduces someone's risk of having a heart attack after they've been diagnosed with heart disease. 
you add onto it the next level of therapy and it's things like stents and bypass grafts and other things they had a little bit of benefit maybe let's say we go 95 percent of the way there with medicines you get a little bit more with these interventions the first 95 percent is with that 500 dollars of medicines the next one or two percent is with tens of thousands of dollars of intervention so it's interesting how we're willing to pay massive amounts for very complex technology that has very small marginal benefit and at some point that challenges the system's ability to be able to sustain all that and we see that with rising healthcare costs decreasing ability to invest in education in infrastructure and other things so we have a trade-off that we've been making as a society that's relatively silent and quiet. Yeah, I don't think we want to talk about... Mm. We don't want to talk about the trade-off. Yeah, it's a tough trade-off, but it it's is. real. It eats up an increasing part of GDP, and we could debate all day whether or not that's productive. But the truth is it does, Yeah. and we can't spend dollars on other things. So the technology consumes more and more of that, and we get increasingly small amounts of benefit for increasing amounts of dollars. And one of the things that I see often, and I've seen it in my family life, I've seen it with members that I speak with, that in some ways there's the mindset that if we have all of this great technology and this amazing science that has advanced so much during our lifetime, right, we see amazing, miraculous things happen that 30, 40 years ago, we just were not. So this idea though, that that can somehow replace those basics of taking care of yourself, that you can be hard on your body, you can spend a lifetime of not feeding it well, not resting it, not getting good preventive care, and that expensive technology can just step in and save you and fix you. And that's been one of the things that I've noticed and watched with some members of my family even where I thought, oh yeah, you know, the science is going to, it can keep you alive, but what does that look like? Right. Yeah, technology is unlikely to help compensate for the little decisions we make day in and day out throughout our lives. That's what creates your life. Technology can probably help with symptom relief. And we do sure. see some, you know, there are benefits that occur. Just in general, the most impactful thing we can do is invest in communities, healthy communities, have our emotional networks, social networks to stay connected to others, gives us hope. With hope comes a much better experience of health and to make decisions day in and day out. There's some interesting work over the years that shows that the healthcare delivery system actually only impacts about 20%. Now, how that gets measured, I have no real idea how you quantify these things. But let's just say it's a minority of the impact on our individual health status. The vast majority of it is what we're born with and the choices we make with this body we've been given throughout our lives. That's about 80% of the impact. 80%. Yeah. And it's equally divided half and half between what you're born with and the choices you make. So we can sometimes say, well, I was born, blah, blah. That's true. But the decisions we make day in and day out accumulate. And those two things add up to the majority of the impact on our health status. 
And then the healthcare system can impact it a little bit, but that number, all that tells me is it's going to probably not save the day because right. the majority of the impact will be from our own decisions. So there's that notion of physician heal thyself. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase. In some ways, it's for all of us. Patient heal thyself. The decisions we make day in and day out will allow us to lead a healthier life and also reduce the need for risky and invasive interventions later that aren't always zero risk. Nothing in healthcare is risk-free. So if you can avoid it, if you can make healthier decisions day in and day out, you can avoid the need for being dependent on those technologies and those interventions and not have to deal with the risks related to them. And to your point, most likely you'll have a better lifestyle along the way. I like that as a great call to action for anyone who's listening. Physician, heal thyself. Be a part of this process before you end up with the diagnosis or the health condition. Focus on those basics. Take great care of yourself. And build that community because that is just one theme that has resonated so loudly for me in a number of areas and I think we're all kind of talking about it in some respect our need for connection and community it does amazing things that we cannot measure or articulate very clearly when it comes to having real relationships and friendships that are not social media based having connections with people who make our community hopeful and helpful and joyful. Whether it's your mental health, you've talked about the physical health aspect of that, and in general, don't we just want this to be a happy life? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you know, you and I are in a business that would encourage people to also make the healers part of their community. So they can seek advice and counsel and really have relationships over time to help them live the best life. And WebMD is not your doctor, right? Amen (laughs) to that. Maybe we should work that in. I mean, I'm I'm guilty a little bit, but you know, As a physician who's been on the receiving end of those WebMD printouts, I will say. Yeah. 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 Don't try this at home, people. Take it to the real trained individuals. But on that note... Think about ways that you can heal yourself. Think about ways that you can build community at work, at home, in your community. You will benefit and so will the people around you. And until the next time we meet again, thanks for joining me on The Checkup today. 